I'm Cal Newport, and this is Deep Questions, episode 174. I'm here in my Deep Work HQ, joined by my producer, Jesse. Jesse, something I am supposed to do and I always forget to do, so I'm going to do it today, is tell people... And I mean, I'm not saying the right things here, but but tell people uh, if you like the podcast, consider leaving a review so that people who are interested in the show can see that people like it. And if you listen but don't subscribe, subscribe. Am I are these the right things to ask people to do? Yeah, people should definitely subscribe to your podcast. All right, there we go. Um, I used to tell so I, I used to tell my listeners uh, I would only do this once a month, and then I just forgot to do it altogether. So, so here we go. This is how you know I'm not I'm not a digital media native. So yeah, do that. I think it's helpful. Might as well tell people about your YouTube channel too. Yeah. Okay. As long as we're doing this, um, yeah, the YouTube channel has the videos of every question asked. It has videos of the full episodes. It has videos of every segment we do, so you can save, refer to, and share all of that. Uh, so go check that out. And you, YouTube's something you can subscribe to too, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, but what does that do? Like, does that matter? Like with, with the, the podcast subscribing makes sense to me because then it means like they'll see all the new episodes. I don't know what it means to subscribe on YouTube. What happens? When you subscribe on YouTube and you get notifications, which you'd be all about getting notifications on your phone. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what I want people to do. Is there a feed? Like if you subscribe to some channels and you go to YouTube.com, is it like, oh, here's like new videos from people you, you subscribe to? I don't get any notifications on any of my including youtube so but you just if you're at the channel you can go in you can see stuff but people do get notifications they get notified when a new video comes up now does it help trick youtube into like telling more people about your videos if more people are subscribed is there like some sort of stuff like yeah, that going probably on? yeah okay. just like comments subscribers views com uh likes yeah all that stuff yeah all right well like do those things, don't do those things. I don't know. I'm terrible at this. Guys, here's what I do. I get in front of the mic and I answer your questions. And uh, so, you know, subscribe to things. Leave a review for the podcast so people know you like it. And I won't bother you about this again for a while. Uh, all right. So new segment. We want to try something new. So back in the early days of this podcast, back when it was just me all by myself, I used to do a segment where I would give updates about what was going on in the life of Cal Newport. So I'm a very private person, but I would on things I was comfortable talking about, give a little bit of insight into what was going on into my life. A little bit weird doing these segments because it's myself basically just talking about myself. But now it occurred to me now that we have Jesse here, we could uh, rejuvenate this segment, which I call behind the curtain since, well, we are in a room surrounded by curtains. So it's like what happens outside of this room uh, a segment called Behind a Curtain, where Jesse will be the proxy for you, my audience, and Jesse will ask me some questions about what's going on in my life. I have not seen these questions ahead of time, so these are new to me. And uh, Jesse, let me make it clear: if I don't like them, you're fired. So let's just <laughs> let's just put that on the table. <laughs> Take that two hundred fifty thousand dollars a month and your two hundred fifty truck. I am going to spend that on. Uh, YouTube subscriptions? Is that is that how that works? Can I spend money on YouTube subscriptions? <laughs> um, one thing you can do on YouTube is you can subscribe to YouTube Premium and you don't get the ads and you get the music. It's actually only like $9 a month. I do it. It's unbelievable. I should probably do that too. Um, it, I, you save so much time when you don't have to watch ads and 
Yeah. Just goes right to the video. All right, so do YouTube premium. All right. Do YouTube premium. Subscribe. Uh, leave reviews. I don't know. Smoke signals. Send me encouraging telegrams so I know what's going on. Write to your congressman and say, I like what Cal Newport is doing. Send uh, cards to your network executives. I don't know. I don't know, guys. I'm terrible at that. All right, Jesse. Behind the curtain, you have some questions for me about what's going on in my life. All right. I think I'm ready for it. All right. So I got a bunch of questions here. So I'm just going to fire a couple off and we'll see how it goes. All right. Can you give any updates on your Zittlecasting experiment? All right. You're fired. <laughs> Next. Let's move on. <laughs> um, the reason why I ask is because yeah. I remember you had the interview with the um, the fellow like back over the summertime Shreen. and I was actually, I was in a cool place. I was on a jog in Scotland on like a golf trip and Brag. I was doing that jog like in the morning <laughs> and I heard this and I was like, this yeah. is, this sounds cool. Yeah. And then I was in a cool place too, like near the beach, like in this like, you know, nature area. But anyway, so I remember that and then you've talked about it a few times. So like wanted to know well, what's going a, on with that. It's a good, it's a timely question because I was talking to Srini recently. So, one of the ideas I was talking to Shreen, I was like, man, I should just have you uh, call into the show and we could do like a Zettel cast and back and forth, like just like a 10 minute, 15 minute thing. So I think we could technically do that, right? Like we could have him call in on zoom or something because he, he, he lives in Colorado. So he's not, not be able to get here easily, but we could have him call in on zoom and like, we could just do a, a Zettel cast because he has a lot of thoughts. Yeah. He has a lot of thoughts on what I've been saying and he thinks like I'm missing out on some of the value. So I think that'd be cool. We have a back and forth uh, in my own life. I, I haven't made any big steps forward. I mean, I'm still in the place where uh, I want Rome, the tool Rome to be the primary place in which I'm capturing most notes that are with the exception of CS research, which requires math notation is a whole separate thing or writing ideas and book ideas and article ideas and all that. I want that all to be in Rome roughly indexed in a Zettelkasten style where, where there's a, there's a central index, but then also bi-directional links and I haven't really upgraded that yet because I've been slammed, which is its own issue I'm having in my life right now. It's self-enforced, uh, self-imposed, but pretty brutal these, these past months with, with my workload. And that to me, that's something you do when you have some time. So I'm thinking as uh, the spring gives way towards summer and my schedule opens up, I want Zettelkasten style system basically capturing the place where I capture most of my ideas because I have a lot of ideas and so we'll see. And so we'll have Srini on. He can help me out. And, fill and then you also just read that book, you know, back in January, right? Yeah. I mean, that book, How to Take Smart Notes, is what really introduced me to Zettelkast. And, and, and it was a cool book, and, and I, I, I liked it. And I recommend it, actually. And a, and a, and a listener sent it to me just out of the blue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'll report back. But maybe what I'll do, here's what I'll do. is like when I have time, I'll have Srini on and have him be my guru. Like let's just 15 minutes, walk me through. Let me ask you my my highly technical questions about how to get this right. And then I'll, then I'll go try it out. So I remain intrigued by Zettelkasten. I have heard from a lot of people, however, that agree with my central complaint that Zettelkasten can't do thinking for you. It can't write articles for you. It's not if, if in almost any position, this idea that you're just going to wander through your Zettelkasten system and come out on the other side with an article or a book or an academic paper is just not how that, not how that works, but it's a really cool way to probably organize a lot of thoughts that aren't easily put into some sort of hierarchical categories. Okay. Moving on kind of related talking about lifestyle centric planning, which you discuss quite a bit. 
for your own life, do you think you're close? I I think changes are looming. I think changes are looming that would get me closer. Um, so I've done extreme lifestyle-centric career planning. I mean, it's why I'm a professor and not in tech startups or venture capital or something like this. It's it's why I write books. Um, very autonomous and uh, interesting income stream and very interesting to me. Uh, it's why we live in Tacoma Park. That was very much a lifestyle-centric career planning very explicit planning process of where do we want to live and why why we want to live there. Uh, right now, I would say the the main obstacle between where I am right now and the very clear lifestyle, and I got to say, I have this written out very clearly in my strategic plans documents. I mean, I, I know the the bullet points of what goes into the lifestyle that I'm working backwards to try to get in place. Right now, I still have too much on my plate. And so the old joke on the podcast is I have 17 jobs, but uh, like I need seven <laughs> instead of 17. So that that's, I think, the, 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 the next evolution to come is it's uh, to be a full-time this and a full-time that and a full-time that, like three or four multiple things. It's just the volume of work is too much. Um, my ideal lifestyle is slower and way more autonomous. Less things, high stakes, like, hey, deliver a book deliver like a really good New Yorker piece. Uh, so high stakes, but you have nothing on your calendar tomorrow. You know, it's up to you. You got to figure this out. You need to make this work done. So, so I'm working on that. There's some early stage visions we're working on right now too, about uh, community investment, getting a little bit more involved in Tacoma park. Maybe we need having some more, you know, I don't want to get too much into it, but some sort of commercial presence here. Do we want to be? So there's a lot of thoughts we have about being more integrated into uh, what's going on in our town, which I think is interesting too. So it's a um, it's ongoing process. Uh, right now, I have too much. In the moment, I have way too much, but strategic. So I, I, I took on a lot of extra work because it's going to help. I think it's important what I'm the thing I'm doing is short lived and I think it's important and I think it's also going to maybe be important for my the lifestyle I want down the line. But right now I'm just being crushed by it. So I'm I'm definitely in a mode right now where I'm thinking through uh what I want to want to want to get there. Because right now I'm just being crushed with overload. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you've seen it. You've seen it. You know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of in and out right now. Like I it is uh, there's too much going on. Having too much is just not good. Now I'm doing it on purpose and for a temporary amount of time. Uh, it's an initiative at Georgetown. I think it's very important, but it brings with it a lot of work. And I probably should have aggressively slowed down other things to compensate, but I didn't. I added it on top of the stuff that was working just fine. And now it doesn't add up and work just fine. And it's too much stuff and it's organized because I'm, the, I'm very organized. So it's not like I'm disorganized and I have the, technically I have the time for it. The issue is, and this is a core idea of slow productivity when there's too much on your plate, no matter, even if you do have the time to get it done, you're super organized. It still short circuits everything. It stresses you out and it's not healthy. So it's, it's a good kind of kick in the butt right now to be like, okay, once I finish this, I really got to get pretty aggressive again at um, pursuing the the lifestyle I have in mind. Makes sense. Um, kind of going with a broader question here. You've discussed the book 4,000 weeks that you read recently. You told Tim Ferriss about, I haven't read it yet, but I will. And generally, do you find that time goes by very fast? Um, yes. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on it depends on what's going on. These type of seasons, like winter, where it's there's a lot going on. It's this and this and this and this. Like this day is basketball, and this day I teach, and so you have this sort of very regular schedule. That's uh, each day is different than the one before, but it's regular each time. I always feel like time moves very fast during those seasons. And then when you're in like the summer and there's not a schedule like that and it's much more autonomous, I feel like time moves much slower. So summer feels like a long time to me. Usually winter feels very fast. Like, oh, we're in February already. We're in mid February already. I mean, I don't mind it because like winter's not the best time anyways, but um, yeah, winter's fast. And then, so does that lead to like broader thoughts about you know getting older and stuff like that and not being able to do certain things or not really for you like that's the four thousand four thousand weeks things i'll tell you i I definitely started thinking about that with uh 40 looming right um because there's a lot of things especially if you're looking at bigger types of achievements there's a lot of things where you say uh if that's not happen by 40 that's not on your list this is like a key oliver berkman thing like i think about this with writing like i've been a successful writer there's writers that are a lot more successful you would think yeah you're where you're going to be like you've taken your swings you've been doing this since you were 20 years old you've written seven books like you've taken your swings and it's gone well but if you were going to be a absolute top of the market writer you'd be an absolute top of the the market writer like same thing with computer science like you've done good computer science but if you're going to be like a breakout brain in that world you would have been a breakout brain in that world you've been doing this for a long time you know and i never really in the 30s you still feel like you're working on things 40 feels like yeah this is this is like the this is where these are my levels so how do we build a life around it and that might be overly pessimistic but that's kind of an oliver berkman point which i like uh, is making sense that there is one key exception to that though so i've gone down a taylor sheridan rabbit hole you know this guy no okay so um he was an actor and he so he was an actor probably best known for being on sons of anarchy on fx uh, the main character i don't know the show i've seen the show i've seen the whole show yeah he's like a lantern jawed oh yeah, yeah 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 you know yeah, yeah. Okay. he's yeah i know Okay, so he's like a big character in that. Anyways, um, but he grew up on a ranch, right? Like he, he came out of, uh, and he owns owns a ranch, come, come up out of a ranch. In his So after the age of 40, he said, I'm going to screenwrite. And he was going to do uh, neo-westerns, which is like the the new type of western. I think the Coen brothers kind of helped uh, usher this in with No Country for Old Men. So it, it, neo-westerns, they take place in, in our modern world. And some of the, the issues are not... Uh, there's like a, a bandit coming to town. It's like the economic hardships of whatever. And so he's like, great, I'm just going to like start writing these type of things. And he wrote uh, Sicario, Hell in High Water, and then Wind River, just like rattled off these like great movies, started writing in his 40s. His second movie was Oscar nominated for best screenplay. Um, Wind River, he directed, like just kind of came out of nowhere and just had such a clear vision. Uh, and then he did the show Yellowstone, which has become a huge, a huge phenomenon. So then he did the show Yellowstone and then there's a spinoff and they're doing another spinoff. And and he, he's part of, I don't know if we talked about this on the show, but in Yellowstone, there's this huge ranch in Texas, a real ranch called the 6666, four sixes. 
and it's huge. I think it's a, over 100,000 acres. It's like six times the size of Chicago. And he's part of a group that just bought it. <laughs> and they're going to, then they have a spinoff of the show that like takes place on that ranch. And he's like a horse wrangler. So like uh, often in this show, Yellowstone, he's a character in the show and he's always just doing crazy things on horses and all the horses in the show are his horses. Anyways, he started all that after 40 and just sort of redefined, redefined the genre. So you never know. And what I'm saying is I think, I think we need a ranch. <laughs> We should, we should broadcast. We should broadcast from a ranch. <laughs> yeah, it would be episode one. But guys, I'm reporting from my ranch. Episode two, you'd be like, it would be you. You'd be like, I, I have sad news. Cows forty yeah. miles in the other direction on a horse in his cabin <laughs> writing uh, some poetry. No, I was going to say more. Cal has been killed. Uh, he has been trampled by trampled by his snake bitten body was trampled by horses and then dragged by cattle through barbed wire because he has no <laughs> idea what he's doing. And also the ranch is on fire. That, that's what would happen. Um, yes, yeah, so I worry about that. Stuff. I, mean, I don't know if I worry about it. I think about it. And I never thought about that before until I realized I was going to turn 40 this year. And Interesting. Then, yeah. And then I was like, Oh my God, I guess this is like, I'm I'm no longer like the hungry upstart thinking like, what am I going to, what's the thing I'm going to do? Where am I going to break out? But also I'm pretty happy with where I am. Uh, so it's not bad, but it's, it's definitely, definitely an adjustment. Mm-hmm. You want another question? Right, let's do one more. All right. Final question. You talk a lot about training like an athlete. Are there any athletes that you closely follow that you like that, you know, resonate with you oh, based on like their training yeah. resume like what they do, what they're all about. Well, our man Scherzer. Yeah. Yeah. You know a little bit of something about his training regime, right? But he's a, yeah, yeah. he's a beast, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like I mean, obsessed. Yeah. He was able to, he was obsessed and uh, was able to keep his career going. I mean, the deal he just signed with the Mets, he's old, man. I know. He's younger than us, but he's old. That's a big deal. That's a lot of money. Um, yeah. That's all training and competitive that's competitive fire right there. Just that like lasers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I like that. I follow him. I, I like to think I'm, I'm like the, the Max Scherzer of, I have to go incredibly narrow here. I'm like the Max Scherzer of podcasts that are in a Q and a format and that deal mainly with questions about like work and productivity and are uh, taped in Maryland. I'm like the Max Scherzer of that. All right. Take it. All right. So there we go. So we, uh, this is a listener called thing. I think thanks for the questions, Jesse. So there you go. A little insight into what's going on in my life. Um, I think it was useful. If you have questions you want Jesse to ask me, you can send them to Jesse at calnewport.com. This is a listener calls episode. We have some listener calls, but uh, we have to first pay the bills. Those type of ranches that we are going to buy imminently don't pay for themselves. So let's talk about a couple sponsors. Uh, I want to talk first about my body tutor all right now jesse you've heard me talk about this before and maybe this is a maybe this would be a good model for us for actually like productivity tutoring or something because like what they're doing here is pretty smart it's fitness and health online coaching they get a coach they come up with a plan for you what you're eating how you're exercising and you talk to them every day you check in here's how it's going and they get back to you every single day like hey good work or focus on this or worry about this oh you had a question about this let me give you some answers to it so you have the consistency of a coach with the convenience 
and the economic efficiency of that coach being entirely online. I think this is a really good idea. Uh, and it gives you something to do. If you're like, I want to get in better shape. I want to get my health together. I don't want to just randomly go at it. Sign up for my body tutor. Get one of these tutors. I mean, we could do this, Jesse. We should do this with like my work tutor or something like that. And you would check in online with me, right? Every day you'd fill out a survey about all the work you would do. And I would leave a voice message in which I would just say, work deeper. And then you need go. another job. I do, so the issue is I don't have enough to do. Uh, so I'm going to tell Adam Gilbert, who I've known for a long time, who runs this, who runs my body tutor. I'm going to tell Adam Gilbert, you, you need to add a, uh, a deep work tutoring service. It's just me saying work deeper and add that to your offerings. Uh, so here's the deal with my body tutor. If you go to mybodytutor.com, that's T-U-T-O-R, and you tell them that you came from deep questions and you could just, Adam looks at every single person who comes in. I mean, he gives you his personal phone number, cell phone number when you sign up. So this is not some anonymous Peloton type nonsense. This is personal. If you tell him, hey, I came from deep questions, he will give you $50 off your first month. So that's mybodytutor.com. Mention deep questions and get $50 off. All right. So Jesse, as long as we are getting our listeners in the fantastic shape so that we can recruit them to come work on our ranch and save me from being trampled let's talk about athletic greens athletic greens is a it's a powder that includes 75 high quality vitamins minerals whole food source superfoods probiotics and the thing i'm always bothering jesse about adaptogens i'm always like hey man how's your adaptogens going Uh, you got all the stuff you need in a powder you take it once a day you put it in 12 ounces of water i add two ice cubes because i like it cold shake it up drink it once a day the reason why i take athletic greens is because it is all they do is this one product they say we again and again relentlessly keep upgrading this one product to have the very best sourced materials in it the whole point is that you don't have to worry am i getting the right stuff am i getting the best stuff I've talked to Athletic Greens uh, directly. They walk me through how this whole works. I trust them. I literally use it every day. It's a powder. And the only thing that's not in the powder is the vitamin D because it's not, again, they obsess about what's going to work. Vitamin D doesn't work well in powder form. So you add a couple drops to it for the vitamin D. And I take it every morning because I don't want to have to worry. Am I having enough of this nutrient? Do I have enough of this vitamin? Take the Athletic Greens. They also have travel packs, which is great when you travel. So it's one serving. Wherever you are, you just throw it into some. You throw it into some water. So uh, I am fans of Athletic Greens. They're not just a sponsor. I actually use it. Your adaptogens okay, Jesse? I was worried about you today. They're deep. Yeah, are they deep? Because I was like, you look like you're adaptogen deprived. I'm not. I'm not sure about this. I'm worried about it. I'm going to bring some athletic greens in the studio and force you to take some before every episode so that you're you're on top of your game. Uh, so let me give you a call to action here. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into flu and cold season. Yes, trust me, we're there. I have three kids. I know all about this. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. Jesse, I would say the reason why you need to take Athletic Greens, by the way, is that if you ever got near my family, I have three young kids that are just germ factories. You're not around kids a lot. I think you would quite literally just die. (laughs) 
like if they came in here right now you'd be like oh it's nice to meet you and then you would just die <laughs> just your immune system would be like forget covid man <laughs> like these kids are swarming in germs this is why i gotta take i take it every single day because man i'm my immune system is at war every day in the winter so to make it easy athletic greens is going to give you free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash deep. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash deep to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. All right, Jesse, let's do some calls. Who do we have on the old call docket today? Okay, our first call is from Mark. He's like you. He's a professor in D.C., and he has a question about finding the opposing views when you're dealing with certain you know, topics. Hi, Kel. My name is Mark, and I'm also a professor at R1 University in the D.C. area. My question for you is the following. Often on your show, you'll discuss this idea of uh, building up the Socratic dialectic, as you call it, or finding the best uh, thinkers or writers or speakers from opposing viewpoints uh, on a given topic. My question is the following. If uh, you want to explore a given topic, but perhaps you know, you're know you not as familiar with the topic enough to kind of know who the key thinkers are on that topic, how would you go about the specific mechanics of identifying who the best speakers were for that specific topic? For example, let's say I wanted to understand the causes of the Baltic War. It's not a topic I'm typically familiar with. Um, how would I go about finding the two or three best thinkers or speakers on that, given that I have no knowledge of that area? Because um, This is sort of the curse of knowledge situation where if I know who the best thinkers are, I'm probably already knowledgeable enough about the field uh, to understand um, you know, what the key points are. But if I'm just entering something for the first time, it's actually quite difficult to do uh, what you're, uh, what you're describing. Thank you for your time. Good question, Mark. Uh, let me start by just underlining the, the bigger picture method that Mark was talking about here. So it's one of the, the big points I've, I've been making on this show since the beginning is when it comes to having an interesting, thriving, resilient, but also authentic and value-producing intellectual life, you have to be very worried about or wary of intellectual groupism. And this is where you say, I just want to be told what I'm supposed to think about something, who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. Your mind knows that you are being subservient when you do that, and it's not happy with yourself. It's not a, it's not a approach to intellectual life that is sustainable. It makes you feel bad about yourself. And it brings you into weird tribal places. It's also, by the way, the dominant mode of intellectual discourse on social media. So uh, beware if you are wandering through the waters of Twitter, you're wandering through the, the waters of, I don't know what people use these days, Instagram. So my alternative, and by my, I mean, this goes back to the very you know early days of systematic thinking about thinking is the, the Socratic dialectic method. If you want to understand something better, Listen to really good thinkers on multiple sides of it. In that collision, you see what resonates, you get more insight, you get a more nuanced, rooted understanding of that topic, one that you can actually base real action on and feel good about it. Um, If by contrast, you just do intellectual groupism, your mind often is not going to really trust your stance because you know you're just following a crowd. So it's not a good foundation for action. You You don't feel confident taking action, real action based off it. 
so then you end up just doing very little about a cause, maybe like tweeting about it or yelling at people or like getting mad at your cousin or something like this. And nothing really happened. So there's this irony of intellectual groupism is that often people think this is the key to changing the world. If we could just get people to just be on our side and don't question it and attack the other side, then we'll change this issue. But actually what you do is you defang people's actual activist impulses and very little action is taken because they don't trust the intellectual foundation of what they believe. They just vaguely think you're on their team and don't want to get yelled at. So encounter real argument. Real argument on both sides. You will not be tricked. Your deep moral intuitions will not be tricked because you read a particularly clever National Review or Mother Jones article. It's not going to trick you. It's going to make your belief stronger and more nuanced. It's actually going to make you a better advocate for what you believe in. So how do you find these things? Well, for really specific issues like the Baltic War, you know, something that's kind of niche, uh, you don't have to find from scratch the best thinker. You just have to find someone who knows about it and ask them who the best thinker is. That's almost always the right way to do it. Like, oh, here's a professor who wrote an article about the Baltic War. That's why I'm thinking about it. I read this article. Let me talk to this person. Like, hey, what, what are like the definitive books on this? Who are the definitive thinkers on it? What are the different sides of this? You can do that for almost any topic. Find someone who knows about the topic and then ask them who they think the best thinkers are. Now, if there's already a clear tribal divide on the topic, just find a reasonable person who seems to be roughly speaking on one side. Find a reasonable person who roughly speaking seems to be on the other side and say, what are the best articles or books about this topic? Then you're going to get those two opposing viewpoints to read them both, let them collide. You are going to have the more nuanced, the more nuanced understanding. All right. So Mark, I I appreciate the question because it gives me a chance to, to go back to that general thinking there's actually a, a a name I heard for that approach to intellectual life, especially like culturally relevant intellectual life. Uh, it was a name that was coined by a a former doctor who is now a full time like podcaster YouTuber uh, who talks about medical issues, and he he goes by and this name is not going to make you feel um, better about what I'm about to tell you here, but he goes by the name Z Dog with two G's. MD. That's how you can find him on YouTube. Z Dog MD. Uh, I don't know what his his actual real name is. Uh, really funny guy. Really smart guy. Really funny broadcaster. But he coined this term alt middle, and I kind of like this terminology, right? So alt middle is basically an approach where instead of partaking in intellectual groupism, where you say. Where's my tribe? What do we believe? Send me the memo. Great. Who can I tweet at? You approach topics one by one and say, let me get into this. If it's interesting or relevant to me and I have the time, let me look at people on both sides of it and come up with my own take on it. And then, and this is critical, be willing to change that take if I, if I get better information down the line. That hold that position with some empathy and with some contingency. I might not quite be right here. This is a complicated topic. And so I'm going to hold that with uh, some contingency, and I'm going to be relatively empathetic to people on other sides. Other people aren't evil. And that is what he calls the alt-middle approach. It really emerged because he's a doctor. He does a lot of sort of COVID-centrist type communication. He's sort of a COVID-centrist. So one of these people that's very plugged in and mainstream on COVID and understands the science, but also is alarmed by both sides, uh, alarmed, for example, by really extreme – anti-vaccination 
type of discussion also alarmed by really extreme you know we need to lock down the kids and put them in underwater cages because there's a guy who lives six states over who was once immunocompromised type thinking you know and so through covid centrism he has evolved this idea but i think it could apply to all of intellectual life alt middle so z dog i appreciate that terminology mark i appreciate you bringing this up find people who seem reasonable ask them who the best is read on both sides of the topic think for yourself hold ideas with some contingencies be empathetic to the other side and trust your moral intuitions, you're not going to be tricked into believing something bad. Your views are going to get more nuanced. Your beliefs are going to get stronger. Your ability and motivation to actually make change in the world, which is what actually matters, is actually going to be improved when you encounter the very best thinkers on all sides of an issue. All right, so thanks, Mark. Jesse, I showed you Z-Dogs. Yeah. I showed you one of his videos because his studio looks very nice. I'm jealous. So what is it that makes it look nice? It's like a lighting, but um, I don't know. It's like a big studio and it's in soft focus or something. Yeah, it kind of looks like a really nice yoga studio. Yeah. I don't know if he has like a nice camera. We have pretty nice cameras. Maybe he has an even nicer camera, but they're good looking videos. He's also a funny guy. I like him. Z-Dog MD. That's such a like, uh, the first name I came up with when I, I bet if we asked him, he's like, I signed up for YouTube on a whim 20 years ago. And it was like the first name that came to mind. And then you're stuck with it. <laughs> it's, such, it's like when you end up with like your email address is like, um, sync fan 24 <laughs> at AOL.com. And you're kind of stuck with it because like all your family, that's the one they know to use. <laughs> I wonder if that's where Z dog came from. All right. What do we got next? All right. The next question is from drew. He's in a gap year. And he has a question on what activities he should pursue. Hey, Cal. Loving the show. I'm Drew from the Philippines, and I'm currently on a gap year before college. I've applied to elite universities in the U.S., and I'm pretty confident I'll get into at least one of them, hopefully. But in the meantime, I'm trying to make the most of my time during my gap year. My country is still in the dying thralls of the pandemic, so going outside is still a bit restricted. So I've started developing a lifelong habit of reading books at a more frequent level, averaging at least one or two nonfiction books per week by employing your method of making it a default activity. And it's been working effortlessly so far. I have approximately 10 months before college, and by the end of my gap year, I want to come out of it becoming the best possible version that a 19-year-old like me is capable of actualizing. What activities should I pursue and what kind of mindset should I employ going forward? Thanks, Cal. So given that you're you're somewhat physically stuck, that's going to change the way we think about this gap year. Because often gap years is built around experiences. You go to interesting places, you meet interesting people, which I think is really important, but now you're going to be limited there. Um, I think what I'm going to advise is that you actually develop a curriculum. So Instead of just, which by the way is great, but instead of just uh, encountering and reading a lot of books, let's have a curriculum that has maybe three goals that you're going to make consistent effort towards. So you might have a a curriculum for reading. I'm I'm trying to get through these particular books and I'm going to read these secondary sources about each of these books to try to fill in a particular subject matter that I want to know a lot about. And I don't care about the details so much here as it is just doing some sort of consistent intellectual exploration. 
I mean, for example, I'll give you an example from my life. When I first came down to Washington, D.C. to take a professorship at Georgetown, this is before we had kids, so I had a lot of free time on my hand. My, my wife worked a normal person job. Professorship's not a normal job. So she had to actually go to work for normal hours, and I didn't. I was a first-year professor. Uh, I did a self-imposed curriculum. I had come across this book, a book of philosophy called All Things Shining by Dreyfus and Kelly. And it was an interesting book that was uh, went back through the classics and extracted ideas from the classics about the, the sacred and finding meaning in life. We actually talked about this recently in my appearance on the Tim Ferriss podcast. I guess Tim tried to read it, um, and he, he didn't actually like it much. And the reason Tim didn't like it is he said, I didn't know all the references. I hadn't read Aeschylus. I hadn't read Dante. And so what I did is I said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to use All Things Shining because it's talking about all these books and drawing interesting lessons about them. And as it gets to each of those books that it references, I'm going to stop and read that. So I'm going to go, uh, you know, I started with the Odyssey because they started with the classical heroic Greeks. And I read the Odyssey and then I read Aeschylus and then I read Dante and I read uh, Augustine. And, and so I followed this book. And I would read the things, then read them, talk about it, then read the next things and read what they talked about. And it was like an organized curriculum. And it was actually really interesting to go through these. And the book ended up with David Foster Wallace. So we went from Homer to David Foster Wallace. And, and there was an organized reflection here as the book went on. So do something like that. Just to get in the habit of I can on myself autonomously dive into an intellectual pool and make sense of it just because I want to. And there's a lot of different topics you can do this on. If you want to steer this, you might consider subscribing to the great courses and let one of the great courses, you pick a topic from there and let that course actually watch the lectures and then read the books, like actually follow a great course if you want a little bit more structure. So that should be part of your curriculum, some sort of focused intellectual exploration where you learn to just love doing focused intellectual explorations. The second thing in your curriculum should have you building or creating something. And I don't know if it's if it's uh, physical, if it's digital, if it's written, if it's code, but it's just you're building and honing a skill and creating things, making intentions manifest concretely in the world. Just to get in the habit while you have the time of developing a skill and creating things, being able to actually add new things into the world. I think that's quite fulfilling. And then the third part of the curriculum I would add is something physical. You know, get in really good shape. Not that you need to be in really good shape to go to college in America, but just that uh, it's an outlet for the the energy. It, it will calm intellectual anxieties and it's self-mastery and efficacy. I'm the type of guy that can structure my time and get after it. I'm getting in really good shape. It just makes you feel like you have control over your own life so that when you when you get there, when you get to college, you have all this confidence. I can control my life and create something here that's really interesting. And 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 I'm I'm not at just the whims of oh my god my classes and I'm stressed and I'm just up drinking all night like you feel like you're actually in control so I would do those three things so that's my three part curriculum I would suggest for your semi homebound gap year the fourth thing I'm going to say which is not part of the curriculum but this is just a substrate you need to socialize and connect as much as the Philippine pandemic restrictions allow. You need to connect to other people. You need to sacrifice on behalf of other people. You need to be a leader in your community and among people you know. That's just going to be the foundation that stops you from going crazy. If you're allowed to see people outside, see people outside. If you're not allowed to do that, then you know, uh, do it virtually until you can. But as soon as you can, do that. Like Be around people, see people, communicate with people, help people, bring stuff to people who need help. Make the social aspect of your life really 
amplified. And this is not about your gap year. This is about you're going through a period of pandemic restrictions that we all went through before. And it's the thing that you have to push over the top to counteract the isolating negative impacts of pandemic restrictions. And so I just want you to see that as medicine. That is your, I don't want to get anxious and depressed medicine for this very specific circumstance. It is, I'm going to become more socially engaged and sacrifice more time and attention on behalf of other people than I ever have before in my life. And that's just your daily medicine. All right. So uh, Drew, hopefully things will calm down there soon. Hopefully you'll find your way to a nice, nice school soon and really enjoy that. But in the meantime, that is my prescription. It's kind of weird, Jesse, to imagine there's still, I mean, I guess it's true, but there's places where you're dealing with lockdown type things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we've, we've been done with those here for a while. I think the populace basically just said, you got to find a better way. (laughs) You got to find a better way. Though, I don't know where we live. You see it every time you come here compared to where you live. Uh, Montgomery County, Maryland is, is not exactly chill, chilled out about the virus. Yeah, I mean, only I'm in Virginia, but it's only seven miles away. It's different. Yeah, interesting times, but hey, we can go outside. So feel bad for Drew. When you were doing that all things shining project, how long did it take you to do all the read all the books and everything? Um, I don't remember. Semester maybe more. I'm not. I mean, I don't know if I read every one. Maybe I skipped a couple. Uh, but I just remember doing it for a lot of that academic year. And then I do other things and I come back to it. Um, yeah, it's vague memory, but I have all those books still. And I remember, by the way, I remember so much from that uh, that it was very useful. Like I, all these, I have all these references now and these understandings of all these different books. I know these cultural references it was actually a pretty cool, it was a pretty cool experience actually. That's what I should have told Tim on the podcast. So, so Tim was saying he tried to read it, but found it really academic, which it kind of is. If you haven't read the books, you're like, what the hell are they talking about? So I probably should have suggested to Tim, like, go back and try the book again, but read the books along with the writers. And so longtime fans will recognize the reference because I talk about it in deep work. So that's where that's where that original reference came back. All right. Who do we got? Uh, Next up, we have Shane McGrath. I'm pretty sure he's submitted a question before in. He's basically got a lot of jobs. He's doing a lot of juggling and he's got a specific question about that. Hi, Cal. My name is Shane and I work as an operations analyst in the medical device field. I'm a big fan of your work and credit the embrace of deep work principles as a catalyst for my last two promotions. So I first and foremost just want to express my utmost gratitude to your work and I look forward to your future work as well. What I want to ask you is your advice and strategies for shifting gears between multiple domains. I have several interests, including writing, learning to code, investing, data analysis, cooking, and playing guitar, which I all tend to. They all feel rewarding in different ways, and I guess I just operate as a right-brained guy who loves to throw coals in the fire. Assuming I keep this juggling act going, do you have any tips or strategies that help to shift gears between work in different domains? When I write, it seems like the optimal state is quite different than when I'm coding in JavaScript, for example. They just seem to hit different. I just wonder how I could do a better job with managing this juggling act I'm in the middle of. Much appreciated, Cal. Thanks a lot. Well, I mean, Shane, my advice here is if you're 
you're struggling juggling lots of balls, um, the best solution is to take out a bunch of the balls. That's much easier than trying to learn how do I juggle five balls. That's hard to do. Two balls is easier. So instead of trying to figure out how to juggle five balls, you could get rid of three. And that's what I think is the issue here. That's too many things. That's too many things. I think the overhead, the overhead of having that many things is probably counterbalancing a lot of the value. So if we want to see what's a more reasonable load, and we're talking here, these are all sort of out of work, leisure type pursuits. There's a few different things. If we're looking through the different deep life buckets, there's like a few different things that are pulling at your time, um, especially outside of work. I mean, first of all, there's the community bucket. I mean, serving your family, serving your friends, being a leader in your community, uh, enjoying and savoring times with people you care about. Like that actually needs a lot of time. That's a default. That's already taken up a lot of time. We have constitution. You got to take care of your body. It's the best way also of, of keeping anxiety low, especially during difficult times. And it keeps you with more options for doing things with your life going forward. And that takes time. So now we don't have a ton of time left. Then you want to throw in there. If we want to have the celebration bucket or under contemplation, you want to throw in there just having high quality present leisure experiences, just really enjoying a movie, really enjoying a dinner, really enjoying a sunset while you're out for a walk and that type of just present gratitude generating moment. Now we're really getting down to a small amount of free time, which honestly, I think the right load there is there's a primary hobby that you work on over time. So you get the satisfaction of mastery and of uh, developing a really refined taste in one area. So if you get really good at a guitar, you don't just get the benefit of the mastery of playing your guitar well, you get the benefit of really being able to appreciate and understand other good guitar players. So it's a gift that keeps on giving. And then maybe have a secondary hobby that you're messing around with. I'm learning how to cook this season. And then I'm really busy and I'm doing no secondary thing. And then I'm messing around with code. I'm going to make like a video game for my kids. And then I'm doing nothing because I'm busy. And you have that secondary slot. I honestly think that's really what people more or less have time for. And my worry is if you try to have five different leisure activities, those other core deep life areas like community, like constitution, like just present celebration, they're going to get squeezed out. And that's to your detriment. And the overhead of just switching back and forth between these things are going to make you more anxious than you get benefit from them. So I'm not sure if that's the answer you want to hear, but that's the answer I am going to give right now is if you do less, this might sound paradoxical, but if you do less, you're actually going to experience more good things in your life. All right. Thanks, Shane. All right. How are we doing here? How many total questions we're going to try to do today? We have... Two more questions, uh, two or three more questions, depending on what you're feeling. All right. Well, let's let's uh, let's do one more, and then we might check in with our sponsors and do another. Okay. So the next question is from. It's about lifestyle planning, and there's some struggles to stay disciplined. So we'll hear what it says. Hi, Cal. This is Ina. And besides being a homemaker, I learn languages autonomously and aspire to have my own language school. My question has to do with rituals and motivation. I have done life-centric career planning, as you recommend, and truly believe that at least for the current season of my life, I have chosen adequate goals towards the future I desire. Nevertheless, I find that some days I really do struggle to stay disciplined and to show up in the morning and get to work. Thinking back on advice you've given on this podcast, there are at least two ways I can approach this. One is to automate the process with a specific when, what, where, and how so that I can let the power of habit take control. 
and the other is to seek a variety of awe-inspiring places to keep my brain interested and to jog my memory about why this work is important in the first place. Which of these options would you suggest for someone who still has to periodically drag herself to her desk? That's a good question, you know. So I think there's a few things that are relevant here, and you you hit on some of them. So my answer is going to overlap pretty strongly with what you were just saying. Automation is key, and automation can mean multiple different things in this context. So as you hinted, automation could just mean this is when, where, and how I do this work. So I don't even have to think about it. I get back from the gym, and then we have a, a desk put aside for bills. And that is when I do it right after the gym on Wednesdays, and that's when I do the bills. And you know what? I always collect the bills from the mail and put them in a a two-process sorter on that desk so I know where they are. And you know what? I have stamps there and the envelopes there, so it's real easy to do. There is an actual boost you get from organization where you say, I've built out a system for this. It's kind of fun to execute a system and see everything was here and it works really well. And then you're more likely to actually do the work. So you have that type of automation. The other type of automation is literally automating it. I'm going to have someone else do this, especially when it comes to work, household admin work. I think uh, Laura Vanderkam has a good book about this 162 hours. And she's a big advocate for this of, to the extent that you can afford it, this is where you should be putting a lot of your money is towards automating stuff uh, in the house, getting household admin off of your plate. You have someone who does laundry, someone who does your yard work, a handyman who comes once a month, and you have this list that grows, and he just takes it and does those things around the house. And her point, which I think is a good one, is that is a super high return investment in money. And what happens instead is people often say, well, I technically could do these things, so I'd rather spend that money on you know something more fleeting or superficial. And it's actually would have got a lot more return in your life just to take those things off your plate. So literal automation, I think, uh, is a priority to the extent that you could do it. The second thing to do here is reduction. So just taking things off your plate. Sometimes when you're not able to get started on things, it's because you're overloaded. There's too much. Your mind is exhausted. It knows it's not sustainable. So I'm not going to do this. I'm sorry. I'm not going to help on that committee. Uh, This is a bridge too far with like my exercise routine, whatever it is, reduction So when your load is reasonable, it's easier to execute because you're playing with your wiring here. Your brain is very good at the thing's important. Let's set a plan. Let's execute that plan. Let's feel really good because we got the plan done. If you overload that part of your brain, it short circuits and you lose all of that evolutionarily optimized inducements to actually do the daily work that's important. We are wired to do daily stuff that's important for the survival of us and our families, right? So let's take advantage of those mechanisms but you can't take advantage of those mechanisms if there's 75 things on your list. And then clarity would be my final suggestion, and that is something you touched on before. Here's my vision, lifestyle-centric career planning, where we want to be in five years, where we want to be in 10 years, where we want to be later this year. This is how everything fits in. These type of more mundane chores, we've really automated and structured, and there's these other things I'm doing that's really fulfilling, and, and we're saving up to do this. And you have this vision that this is all a part of that. You mentioned that as being important. You are right that that is important. You are building towards a vision that you believe in and think is important. You're working backwards from that positive goal is very important to keep things moving. So if you have kids, for example, there's a couple natural milestones to think about. There's a sort of young kid period, which is sort of a survival mode. There's a steady state period where you have 
grammar school age kids and what you want life to be like there, time with them, the role of work, where you live, you know, really thinking through what that experience is like. You have a really clear vision for, okay, when does the last kid leave the house? These are the changes that are happening then. I think it's a great time to have a more substantial change to your lifestyle. So you have these very clear visions that you're working backwards from, that you're working towards with your day-to-day uh, your day-to-day efforts. And that, again, you're very right to point that out. So automate, reduce, clarify. Do those three things. That's what's needed to keep making progress in a disciplined fashion on the stuff that's annoying but has to get done. That's how you avoid just being paralyzed by exhaustion and indecision and lack of motivation. All right, well, speaking of motivation, talk about a couple of sponsors that make this show possible. One thing I often lack motivation to do is go to a physical post office. We have one right down the street from us here in the Deep Work HQ, and it is crowded. You have to wait in these long lines. It's a little bit depressing. This is where stamps.com comes to the rescue. So with stamps.com, you can print official postage right from your computer so you can spend less time at the post office and more time running your business. It gives you access to all the post office and UPS shipping services you need. You can do it right from your computer. You print the postage, you stick it on, you schedule a pickup, no going to the post office, no waiting in line. It's one of these rare business ideas that just simply makes sense. It barely even requires to be pitched because people get it. Oh, instead of going to the post office, I print the postage at home. Got it. What do we do? How do we sign up? Well, I'll tell you how to do that. Uh, You go to stamps.com and you use the promo code D. And what you're going to get with that is a special offer that includes four-week trial, free postage, and a digital scale with no long-term commitments or contracts. You just go to stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the page, and enter that code DEEP. Remember, whether you're sending invoices or side hustling with an Etsy shop, or you're a full-blown warehouse shipping out orders, stamps.com is going to make your life easier. You're going to join over 1 million businesses that have been using stamps.com for over 20 years. So go to stamps.com and use that promo code DEEP. I also want to tell you about one of the original sponsors of the Deep Questions podcast, and that is Grammarly. Grammarly is a uh, software product that works on all of the tools in which you do daily writing and all of the types of apps or programs you use to do this daily writing. And it helps you make your writing better. This is really important. We are here in this winter grind where it's emails all day and instant messages all day work is work the summer's far away christmas break was is in the rearview mirror all we're doing all day it seems like seeing on our screens and communicating you want that communication to be crystal clear so people will take you seriously that you will be persuasive so that you will have influence and respect within your company grammarly is how you make sure that you are doing this so i don't know jesse do you remember the old grammar checkers from the old days where it would just like underline the words and tell you like you misspelled there or something like that. Yeah. Well, I got to show you Grammarly premium because I've been, I've been working with it and am really impressed with what it can do. It's not just telling you, you spelled there wrong. 
It can help you rewrite an entire sentence. It can tell you what the tone is on your email, right? They could be like, Jesse, I'm looking at this email that you're you're about to send here or something. And the, the tone here is that you sound like um, that you're coming in a van to carry away their corpse, you know? So you might want to adjust that tone to be a little bit more a little bit more positive. No, that's not, that's not actually one of the tones, but it can tell you like this is the tone. Like it's super official, it's super um, super friendly, colloquial, because you don't always know. You don't always know when you're writing how it's coming across. This program can actually tell you. It even has clarity suggestions. I like this one. Like it'll come in and say, um, hey, there's Steinbeck. This is my me voicing the grammar. He doesn't actually say this, but this is what I feel like when I use this, when I use this tool. Hey, there's Steinbeck. Uh, this this giant adjective uh, great you're smart i love it but no one's gonna know what the hell you're talking about like it'd be much clearer if you just use this word which actually captures what you're trying to say better grammarly actually does that so it's really powerful now it's like having an editor who sits over your shoulder and helps you actually write clearly so get through those emails and your work quicker by keeping it concise confident and effective with grammarly go to grammarly.com deep to sign up for a free account when you're ready to upgrade to Grammarly Premium, you will get 20% off for being a listener of my podcast. That's 20% off at G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash deep. Hey, Jesse, we need something like that for like most academic departments. It's like professors, we're all weird and live in bubbles and we have tenure so like no one ever our jobs aren't in jeopardy and we get weird in our email communication and there's always that one professor in every department that has to send out an incredibly like aggrieved and upset email about everything like you can you can say um whatever fyi we have a new water cooler because the other one broke and you will get this long email almost immediately that is that is like in this day and age to have a water cooler because, you know, my uncle was killed by a water cooler and I don't like the way that water cooler looked at me and um, and I think it's an anti-Semitic water cooler and also we shouldn't use the word water and, you know, just mad about everything. We need like a Grammarly.com plugin that, that it sits on every academic email server that just comes back and say, don't send this, you sound like a crazy person. Everyone's going to think you're a crazy person. And it just flash, just crazy person detection because every department has someone has just been in their head too long and they just are, I just imagine in a dark room with their, um, somehow it's a typewriter hooked up to their email. I don't know how that works. Just like, I'll show them. And they need a Grammarly.com detector that's like, people are going to think you are literally insane. That's what we need. All right. Um, what are we doing here? 55. Let's do one more call. I think we got time for one more call. Okay. Sounds good. This question is from Cameron. He's in college. He has a question about your thoughts on the metaverse from Meta. Hi, Cal. College student here. What are your thoughts on the metaverse that Meta is currently trying to build? How do you think that it's going to affect society? Thank you. Well, there's, there's, a, there's a few things going on here. One, why is Facebook doing this? And, and in part, it's because as I've been predicting for a few years now, the the age of social media monopoly platforms is has begun its descent. We just didn't realize it. Now we're starting. Now we're actually starting to see it. Uh, Facebook posted one of their first reductions in active user minutes, and their stock lost something like one hundred fifty billion dollars 
the biggest in absolute value single one day drop of a company's valuation ever. So people are leaving Facebook. People are leaving Instagram. This, this era in which there's six platforms you have to use or you can't communicate. You're completely out of it, out of it. That's all dissolving into a world of much more niche social media. And I've talked about before why this has happened. I talked about this on Lex Fridman's podcast, for example, I went the detail on this. The issue is the network effect, the main network effect that these platforms had that made them monopolies was everyone you know is using them. And so when their main promise was you're going to update people on what you're up to and see what people you know are up to, that network effect dominates. If I need a place to go to see what people I know are up to and they're all on this one platform, no competitor will succeed. I have to go to Facebook. That was the foundation on which they built their massive user base. They then got spooked because they saw Twitter come out of nowhere and have a lot of success with this algorithmic curated timeline feature. And so the main social media companies, namely Facebook and Instagram, and then Facebook eventually bought Instagram, said, well, what we're going to do instead is say these platforms are not about connecting with people you know. It's about distraction and entertainment. We will select articles and posts and things that are generating a lot of engagement and we'll put them in an infinite scroll news feed and you can just click on that F on your phone when you're bored and there'll be something there that's going to press your buttons and it's a good distraction. That was the beginning of the end for these platforms. Yes, when you already had 1.3 billion people on these platforms, they were going to use it more in the short term because that's more interesting than seeing what your cousin's up to. But in the long term, now there's no reason to be on Facebook if I want to be entertained. Yeah, that's entertaining, but so are podcasts. So are shows on the streaming services. So are books. You know, so are any other number, any other number of other services where it could care less if my cousin uses it. And that's exactly what happened to Facebook. It's like, yes, that was more entertaining for their existing users, but over time, their users were saying, I don't really want to see facebook news feeds i want to watch you know yellowstone over on paramount and listen to a podcast on some niche topic i'm really interested in this is entertaining but other things are even more entertaining so they're starting to lose users and so what we get instead is the rise of much more fractured social media where the experience is okay if we're going to do distraction let's just do distraction and that was tiktok's play tiktok said okay if this is just about scrolling things and being distracted, let's just plug that matrix cable straight into the back of your spine. Let's get rid of the whole, like my cousin's on here and I have a wall and I'm connecting to people. Just get rid of all of that. And let's just like hone in like a laser beam on by just the absolute most in the moment dopamine hijacking attention generating style of content. And don't even worry about where it comes from. We'll just show you things one after another. If that's our game here, then let's just purify that. And that's what TikTok is doing. And that's why it's sort of eating the lunch of the other social media platforms because it's saying, forget this, like I want to connect to people I know stuff. However, that is a world in which the obligation to be on these platforms completely dissolves. And I don't mean to rant too much about this, but Cameron, I think about this a lot. Five years ago, when I would say in public, I don't use social media, I don't use Facebook, people were aghast. Like, this is crazy. How can you survive in our society without it? That's where everyone is. That's how you know what's going on. That's where all the cultural trends are. That's where all the news is. That's how you get business. In an age of TikTok, no one cares anymore if you're not using it because it's just purified dopamine distraction. So if you say, hey, um, I don't have a TikTok account, no one's like, how do you survive? 
Like, yeah, I know it's weird. (laughs) You know, it's fun, but there's no expectation that you would use it. And that's actually way more healthy relationship with these tools. And so what we're going to get is TikTok 2.0 and 3.0, all sorts of different services that directly press buttons in very specific types of ways. A clubhouse was like this. It was doing something else very specific, but it was very interesting. None of which have any network effect requirements. I don't need my cousin and my friends from high school and my grandfather to be on TikTok for it to be useful in its promise to me. It's promise to me is like, we're going to show you these videos and there's going to be a cat on it and it's going to be entertaining. And so once you got rid of the network effects, this whole thing is just going to fragment into lots of different sources of entertainment, some different than others, some much more base, some much more high end. It doesn't matter. Uh, and no one will be expected to use any one of these things. And it's not a weirdness if you don't use any one of these things. And that's actually a much better, healthier world, this more long tail niche social media type world that's less about connection and more about distraction is fine. And that's where we're going. And you can't be a $700 billion a year social media company anymore once we get to that world. And that's what Facebook sees. And that's why they're trying to shift away from it. All right. So that's the whole background for what's going on. I think the particular meta vision that we see now, which tends to be focused on social life occurring in virtual reality, that's a smokescreen. That's not the big headline. The big headline with these technologies is going to be the dissipation of the personal electronics industry. I was talking to some people in the industry about this when I was doing a a New Yorker piece last fall about people who work in virtual reality. This, Cameron, is the trend that is much more powerful. And And the trend works as follows. Once augmented reality glasses get to a certain level of quality, and once we have sufficient high speed internet wherever we need to be, and we're very close to that, there will be no need to own any other consumer electronics beyond those glasses. If I want to use a computer, I don't buy a computer from Apple. There is an instance in some Amazon virtualization cloud somewhere of my computer running in a giant server farm, and my AR glasses will create a screen wherever I want in the environment in front of me. And there is a screen of whatever size I want, and there I work on my computer. If I need to use my phone, I do not need to own an iPhone or an Android phone. I have my glasses on. I can just pull my hands down, and there is the list of my contacts, and I can see who's texting me. I don't need a separate phone. If I want to watch TV, I do not need a 65-inch TV. I can make a 65-inch TV show up wherever I want in my house, and it can be in a position where I see it through my AR goggles, but everyone else in my house sees it in the exact same position. We can't tell the difference between that screen being there in real life or not. There's no need to actually buy or own TVs. That is the huge game changer that is coming. The virtualization of computation into the cloud and the replacement of interfaces with augmented reality goggles. Many companies disappear once that happens. What's the Foxconn plant, Apple's Foxconn plant, going to do when there's no iPhones to produce, there's no iMacs to produce? What are they going to do? You know, that's going to go out of business. What's Samsung going to do when high-end Android phones and large-screen TVs don't need to exist? It's going to disappear. It's going to be a huge change to the the digital electronics industry. And guess what? All of the major players are investing huge amounts of money to make sure that they are not going to lose in that game of musical chairs. Yes, Facebook talks about meta. Facebook is also caring a lot about this future of of virtualized consumer electronics. They are spending a lot of money on, guess what? Their own pair of these augmented reality glasses. Apple is putting a ton of money into this as well because it is existential for Apple. 
Apple is a trillion dollar company that will disappear and no longer exist if they don't win the fight to be the people who produce the best glasses that virtualize all this because you don't produce iPhones in a world of augmented reality. Amazon and Google are betting big on both. Google is betting big on the glasses front. They're doing that with Magic Leap, which they put well over a billion dollars into. Amazon is trying to be the back-end computation. So if we don't actually have a phone, if we don't actually have a computer, where does that computation happen? Amazon is saying, we'll do it. We're not just virtualizing computation. We're virtualizing hardware. We can make anything you want happen in our servers, and we'll just beam the screen to wherever you are. So, Cameron, that is the big trend. That is going to be the trend that's going to completely upend our industry, not, as Mark Zuckerberg videos would seem to imply, us playing cards in virtual reality in a space station with some of our friends. That's not that interesting to me. The thing that's going to upend our world is all interfaces are virtual. All computation happens on Amazon servers. And 80% of the major digital electronics companies that exist today don't no longer exist in any way that we anywhere like how we see them today. That's what I would keep my eyes on, not being in one of these weird virtual reality space stations and and you know doing Facebook with avatars or something like this. Interesting stuff could happen there, but that's not where my eye is right now. All right. Well, speaking of where my eye is right now, I think we've run a little long, so we should probably wrap up this week's episode thank you to everyone who called in if you go to calnewport.com slash podcast you can get instructions on how you too can submit your own listener calls videos of this episode and every question discussed are available on our youtube page there's a link in the show notes if you like what you heard you'll like what you read on my long-standing weekly email newsletter you can sign up for that at calnewport.com we'll be back on monday and until then as always stay deep <laughs>